0: Is this not totally cool? I want one. I'm thinking I can preach from this thing. You start falling asleep and I start hitting it. Stephen offered to teach me how to play queen on it like we will rock you. And I said, we'll save that for another time. (laughs) I really do want one, Lori. I don't know where you're at. At the very peak of Jesus' notoriety, he wanted some alone time with his disciples, and they went on a long walk in order to get it. Um, As a matter of fact, the passage that Michael was just sharing with you from Mark chapter 8 is part of this event that happened. Um, Jesus, if he was here, took a a walk from this location 27 miles. Now, Now think about that. He walked... Literally, this distance, if you went out Hazlitt Road, went up to Marsh Road, up to 69, 69 to 127, 127 all the way up north of St. John's, a 27-mile hike to make a point to his disciples. So he's got just the 12 with them at this point. They're hiking to this area called Caesarea Philippi, and it, uh, some pagan things went on there that I won't get into describing today, but it was a pretty vulgar place. Now, at this location, Jesus took a poll among the 12 disciples that were with him. He turned and said this question to them. Who do men say that I am? Some say Jeremiah. Some say John the Baptist. As they threw out the different suggestions, Jesus turned and said, Who do you say I am? It's at that moment that Peter stopped and said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, blessed are you, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Rather, my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, on this rock, this truth, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, in speaking to Peter and the rest of the disciples, he wasn't saying, on Peter I'm building this church. It was on this rock of truth that Peter had just declared. This rock, this evidence that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my ecclesia. Jesus was about to do something that had not been done since the time of Moses. God is about to call a people out, a distinct people group for himself. Ecclesia means to be set aside, the church, a people group who've been set apart for God. And in order to establish the church and build it upon this firm rock, God gave us some very clear definition and instruction about what instruction about what the church is supposed to look like. What the construct of it would be so that no force could push against it. There is no more authoritative force on earth or in heaven than the name of Jesus and what he did for us. Understand that. So he said, my force, my church is so powerful that the gates of hell cannot stand against it. And you notice, it's us on the offensive. Hell is on the defensive. Hell behind the gates, the church pushing against it. And hell will not be able to stand against it if the church is firmly structured. So that's why he said the gates of hell will not overpower it. That's why it's so remarkable at this moment that Jesus called his church, the ecclesia, to the ultimate battle, the battle for truth. And as we're working through Titus, we're finding that there's a structure God had in mind for his church. Last week we looked at the very beginning part in which Titus was left on an island, an island called Crete, middle of the Mediterranean Ocean, south of Italy, about 160 miles long. A training place for military men, a place where sailors were dumped off to receive their training, a place where soldiers of Rome were sent. Think like Camp Pendleton. People were sent there for military training. And then it's also a sailing port. So this sailing port saw lots of individuals coming in and out, trading their cargo, And then you have the island dwellers. So there's a unique makeup of individuals on this island. And Titus has been given the task of establishing a church in the midst of this area. Obviously a very fledgling church because it needed some structure to it. But what we found last week is that God desired and desires to save lost people. He desired to save the people of Crete, so he established the church there. But he wanted it firm in its function just like he desires to save people around us. He wants the church firm in its function. So we're going to understand this morning that there's a strong principle coming out of Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And the principle is this. God desires qualified, quality leadership. God desires leadership that is as effective in business as it is in politics, and more effectively in the larger kingdom, God wants qualified leadership because Scripture tells us when the wrong people are in control, the people groan. So it's a matter of quality in leadership, not a matter of quantity. That's what God is looking for. If you've ever been part of an organization, a business, a ministry, a church, of any type in which the wrong leaders were in control, you know how quickly it can destroy the organization. What was once lush and beautiful and prosperous and a blessing to everyone, can become a barren wasteland very quickly with the wrong people in control. God spoke to this in Proverbs 29. 29.2, you'll see it on the screen. When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, they groan. You only have to look back through history to remember very clearly, if I mention some names, what this verse is speaking of. Caesar Nero. Caesar Domitian. Hitler, Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein. When people hear those names, they groan because the godly were not in control. But when the godly are in control, the people rejoice. So Scripture says there's a very clear delineation of who would be in control of this force, this church, who would lead it. And God gives us in Titus a definition for what the godly men look like who will lead this force, who will be supporting and behind the congregation and instructing the congregation. And that's what we're going to look at in Titus this morning. And it is a tough, tough job to be in the position of an overseer. As a matter of fact, look with me on the screen at 1 Timothy 3.1. First of all, we're told it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, meaning elder, It is a fine work he desires to do. This aspiring word means to latch onto, literally, to take grasp of. It tells me, very specifically in the Greek, we're not to burden someone with a position of elder. We're not to say, you've got to do this, but rather an individual has to aspire towards it, saying, I want to latch upon this. I feel the calling of God upon my heart. And it is a hard job, so no man of his own ego should aspire towards it, but rather one who's seeking to fulfill God's calling on his life. Look at Chuck Swindoll's quote with me on the screen. If you don't think this is a tough job, this is the way he sums it up. If you ever find yourself craving a leadership position in a church, go into your closet at home, close the door, take one of your shoes with a heel and hit yourself in the shin real hard several times so that you bruise yourself a little bit. There is nothing to be envied in the role of leadership. To be sure, there are moments of joy. But overall, it is tough, mostly misunderstood work. But it's also very rewarding. However, it's as serious as it gets because it's for the purpose of the kingdom and it's not to be taken lightly. That's why God is so specific. And what we're going to look at is a list of essentials We're not playing horseshoes here. We don't play fast and loose with God's book. We're taking on specific instructions. As pastor, I serve as an elder among the elders, not over them, but among them and with them. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn in uh, the New Testament to Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 if you're not already there. If you're new to New Hope, you'll find Bibles in the pew racks there in front of you. As well, uh, all the passages will be up on the screen. Right away, we find out why Paul left Titus in Crete. For Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, why set things in order? Who's on the island? Why does he have to do this? What, what is Titus about to face? Well, we've already said it's a military training compound and it's a sailing port. And then you've got the island dwellers. And among them, if you look down to verse 10, you see a description of the people that were causing Titus grief. Verse 10 says there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So we've got gossips and we've got hypocrites and slanderers, and then he's got the legalist. So this is what Titus is up against. So he's saying, I want you to set things in order. And to do this takes planning, advanced planning, This is written in the past tense. You see that Paul said, as I directed you, meaning they had discussed it previously. And now he's saying, go ahead and execute what we had previously discussed. Put it in order. Set in order is a medical term. Let me give you the definition for it on the screen. Epidiortho, to straighten further or to arrange, to set in order. It's used in orthodontics. Ever have braces? You go to see an orthodontist? An orthodontist, epi ortho will set things in order. Your teeth are already in your mouth, but you may need braces to straighten them. You have a broken bone, you go to see an orthopedic surgeon, perhaps to have it set, to set in order, epi ortho and that's the definition that's used here. So it's already there, but not properly in order. So Titus, this is your, your job, and it requires grace. Like I said, if you've ever been in a situation where the wrong leaders are in control, You know that they devastate an organization. So Titus has a responsibility of finding the right people and setting things in order. Now he says specifically, I want you to appoint elders. Very important point in the church. Be sure that your theology is not formed by your politics around you or the government in which you live. Your theology needs to be formed on the word of God. This word appoint means literally select and put in place, not elect, in the United States, we 're used to democracy. We vote on everything. We vote because it 's a popularity contest. Appointing elders is not a popularity contest. it 's an appointment. Look with me on the screen at the word that 's used here. Cathaista it means to place down permanently, to designate, to appoint or conduct, to ordain. To ordain who? The presbyteros, the elder. The definition is very generalized for a person who's an elder. On On the screen you'll see that it's just an older man. The word elder didn't really come into being until the book of Acts when the church exploded in growth. And then God put in place elders over the church. But presbyteros means generally an older man. However, an older man, just being a man of age, doesn't qualify you to be an elder, according to Scripture. God gave us some very specific instructions about who is serving as an elder. Simply being older doesn't do it. We learn, first of all, that the selection of elders is the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. Look with me on the screen. Be on guard. This is Acts twenty twenty eight. Be on guard for yourselves, elders, And for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So we see the appointment is done seeking the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, understanding his selection process. And he says specifically in every city that he directed him, 160 miles long, Titus had to make his way around the island, selecting these individuals. Now at this point, I'm going to challenge the young men in this congregation to listen very closely to the list of qualifications of what a godly man looks like. You are the leaders of tomorrow of God's church, and you will have to step up one day and take on the position of elders in his church. This is the definition for which God requires a godly man to look like. You don't want to get to the end of your life and wish, oh, I wish I would have done it differently, but rather know God's standard now. Set things in order from the very beginning. Lay the groundwork. So understand what this definition is. The next four verses give us the qualifications of an elder, and there are no substitutions. They're not permitted to change it at all. It's a a man that's not qualified, according to this definition, is not permitted to be an elder. We're not seeking to be politically correct here. We're seeking to be biblically accurate, okay? So, with that in mind, look at verse 6. Just trying to avoid the letters that could come as a result of this. (sighs) Send them to Gary Post, would you please? Verse 6, "...namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, or rebellion. An unblemished man it means his public, his public reputation is unsoiled, above reproach. But let's take on the first section there in the beginning here. If any man, if any man in the Greek could be anyone, you'd have to twist the entire scriptural record, in which God says every time when he speaks of an elder, his, him, he, a man over the household of the church and over the household of his family. It is not referring to a woman. And I know many individuals would like to see it fit that way in our modern age, but God is very specific. Look with me on the screen, 1 Timothy 3, one. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. But he must be a man without a soiled reputation. Look at the definition on the screen for irreproachable. Anacolectos, an unaccused individual... One who could not be laid hold on. Someone in a public setting could not look at an individual and say, your reputation is soiled, so therefore you cannot represent the church of God. Not even subject to indictment. It carries the idea of being blameless. Now we're not talking about sinless perfection. Everyone has sin in their life. This is talking about an individual who deals thoroughly with sin. And the whole picture here is of a life that's in good order before God, in complete understanding that he surrendered to God. The next passage, husband of one wife. This implies sexual purity, a one-woman man. Literally, that's the way the Greek renders it, a one-woman man. It's very important that we let the text say what it says because it says we must only have one wife. This is why, in the New Testament setting, many Jews practiced polygamy. There were Jews who had multiple wives. The Romans and the Greeks changed wives like they changed their dirty clothes. They were constantly exchanging wives. Some individuals would come home for supper, find a burned meal, and be irritated with his wife and write a letter of divorce based on a burned meal. So Paul had to be very clear, in this setting in which you live, Titus, you've got to find individuals who are the husbands of one wife. There are many different interpretations for this passage. I'll just give you a few. The Catholics believe specifically that this is calling someone to have never been married before. I'm not sure where they get that from because if any man aspires to the office, it's a fine work and a husband of one wife. So I understand that it can be a married man. I believe that it excludes divorced individuals. I also believe that it excludes those who have not been faithful Who have not been in a monogamous relationship. I am broad enough in my thinking to understand, according to Scripture, that if an individual has been married and lost his wife to death, became a widower, and remarried, that individual would still qualify, but some would like to take issue on that, and we could discuss that later. I believe a man's wife should also be his closest friend. If he's going to serve as an elder, you want to know that there's a strong relationship of love between the two so that he is free to share love with the congregation if they've got a strong relationship. Children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. You want to know that the one who's going to lead the church is going to be an individual who has his own family life in control. So first of all, it says children who believe, meaning their faith is in Jesus Christ. They've declared Christ as their Savior. Successful leadership in the home is a proving ground for the church. And next it says, not a guilty of dissipation or rebellion. Asoto, aso, <laughs> I did this in the first service. Asocia, properly unsaveness by implication, pro, profligacy. The, the passage you read in Scripture that is dealing with an individual who's called the prodigal son, the one who wanders away and runs away from home, he's guilty of asocia one who's guilty of abandoning his family's training, his roots, and turning his back on it and going the other way. The next word that's used is the word rebellion, and it's anaputaktos, I'm going to help you with this word because you can use it later. Say anaputaktos. Now look at the definition for this. Anaputaktos, unsubdued, insubordinate, in fact or in their temperament, disobedient, that is, which is not put under or unruly. So the next time you're riding in the car, parents, and you have a child disbehaving, you turn around, instead of saying, stop that, you say, you're being anaputaktos. Got it? Practice that word. They're going to say, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Anaputaktos is one who's refusing to recognize the authority around them. One who refuses to submit to the authority. And these are referring to children who are still at home. Children who are living under the authority of their parents not those who have gone out and established their own life. So verse 7, here's what the overseer the elder must not be. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. An overseer, again, is an exchange title for elder, one who oversees or watches over others' affairs. So God's steward refers specifically to a slave relationship. In Paul's day and in Titus's day, an oikinomos was a steward, a slave who had risen within the family ranks to the degree that the master could trust the steward with his entire household. The word is a good reference to Joseph in the Old Testament where Joseph had control over the household of, of Pharaoh's servant. One who is entrusted with the finances, bringing in the crops, caring for the health of the family, is an oikinomos. So that's the word steward that's used here. Here's a good representation of how it's used in Scripture. Look with me on the screen at 1 Timothy 3.15. I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So we see the church is God's house. He says, it's my household. So the stewards, the elders who have been elevated to that position, have responsibility as an oikinomos to oversee God's affairs. Now, look at verse 7 with me of what he must not be not self willed, not overbearing. So, this is an individual who's a leader, not a dictator. Someone who's not looking constantly to assert his own way, but rather looking out for the needs of others. He's not always pushing. The word that's used here means athade, and it means to be arrogant, to looking out for their own self-interest. Every single leader fights against this very issue, constantly wanting their own self-will at the expense of others. So God says, don't be self-willed. Fight against that desire. Not quick-tempered, meaning they're slow to draw conclusions. They don't have a short fuse. Not constantly ticked off but rather willing to allow things to play out, slow to draw their conclusions, even when everything seems to be going wrong around them. The next part, not addicted to wine. Literally, it's saying, continually alongside the bottle. The definition that's used here is paranoia. Look with me at the definition. Given to wine, one who sits beside the bottle. It was used of those who went to pagan festivals when the festival got to its absolute climax, you would see individuals sitting around at tables or laying on the ground who were perioinos, who were literally hugging the bottle. They were so drunk. They're addicted to wine, and it controlled their life. And especially in spiritual leadership, you do not want individuals who are not clear-headed, who are not thinking and in control. First Timothy 3:3 speaks to this: not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but rather gentle. And peaceable. Now, pugnacious, what is that? You know anybody that's pugnacious? Anybody here know that definition? I had a school teacher who was pugnacious. We'll call him Mr. B in case he hears this recording. Um, Mr. B would wear dress shoes to school every day. And he did it for one specific reason because they had a wooden heel on them. And with his dress shoes with a wooden heel, he would walk the aisle of our classroom and it was in our sociology class, and if you would not give him the right answer to his question, he would find your foot and put his heel on your toe and stand on your toe until you gave the answer. That's pugnacious. It's an intimidator. I know, you're thinking lawsuit, right? Yeah, you could never get away with that obviously today, but that was the method by which he taught or intimidated There was no teaching taking place because we all walked in fear of him. He would stand on your toe till you cried if you didn't give him the answer that you wanted. So that's what pugnacious is. It's a one who's ready to hit another individual, and you don't want elders ready to hit people in the church, right? Okay. It means you're ready to give way about things that really don't matter. Not fond of sordid gain, a person who seeks wealth no matter what the cost. Constantly chasing after the dollar at the expense of others around them. Jesus said, first of all, that the laborer is worthy of his hire, meaning earning a living is a good thing, and elders should be earning a living, but not at the expense where he forsakes everything else and is constantly chasing the dollar. Free from the love of money. 1 Timothy 3.3 says, literally, an elder should be free from the love of money, not free from money. I've known very wealthy men who are completely free of the love of money. I've known very poor men who are completely addicted to money. It's not a position of your status. It's a position of your attitude and what you're chasing after. I believe one of the areas that's least attractive to those who are outside the church is the issue of finances within the church because there's been so much scandal over the years. And I don't mean just in televangelism. Within even smaller community churches the lack of accountability on finances. I'm fortunately very protected here. We have a strategic council, individuals who oversee the finances, and they report to the elders. I don't have to deal in that particular area other than to give my opinion, and I sit on that board. But I don't have to sit in the back room and count money. And that's a good thing. Pastors want to avoid that. So here we have a group of people who watch out for the church financially. Here's what an elder must be, verse 8. Hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. Now, hospitable means way more than just hospitality. Think about the time these individuals were living in. Under Caesar Nero, he was burning the homes of Christians. A hospitable elder would be one who would take an entire family and bring them into his house to live with him, to shelter them and protect them. So hospitality goes beyond just being friendly out in the atrium. It means someone who's willing to share their capacity to help those around them who are in need. Sensible is a person who's under control, they're cool-headed. Sulfrene is the word that's used there, and it means they're self-controlled in all areas. They don't allow other things going on around them to distract them. Just means a man who sticks by his word. Devout means he's unstained, he's true to his direction, not Turning to the left or to the right, self-controlled applies to multiple areas. It's applied to a man's passions. Self-controlled, as it's used here, speaks specifically to his passions mentally and his passions physically. In our questionnaire that we give out to the elders who are going to become elders here at the church, 15-page questionnaire, there's questions about their physical makeup how they eat, how they care for themselves because Scripture is very specific here about the individual's makeup and how he controls himself. What we're talking about here, I want to be very clear, especially if you're new to church, is not a salvation issue. What we're talking about is God's high standard for what a godly man looks like who will represent this church that Jesus said the forces of hell cannot stand against it because it's so well-structured. Now let's look at the verse, uh, last verse, verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both, ex- both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Holding fast the faithful word, literally because God is faithful, we learned last week, God who cannot lie, remember that? God cannot lie, and so his word is faithful, so those who represent his word must also be faithful. If you've noticed up till now, all the qualifications are what a man must be. Now we look at what a man must do in this last verse. He's to be a teacher who will be able to both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we see the elders of this church need to have a two-fold ministry. Specifically, number one, that they're going to build up the church with healthy doctrine, with truth, and they're going to refute false teachers. They're going to stand against those who would teach falsely. Last week, we talked about this word karugma, which is expository teaching, meaning explaining the text of the Bible, to exposit the Word of God. That's one facet of teaching. The other teaching mentioned here is causing the mind to understand Putting the two together, the karugma and the teaching, the didaskos, meanings to help the body grow in a healthy doctrine. First of all, look with me at what it means to say, hold fast, the faithful word. You're familiar with Velcro? Look at the definition on the screen, Enteco. Adhere to, by extension, to care for, to hold, to support, to strongly cling or adhere to something or someone. So the elder within the church is to cling like Velcro to the word of God, not able to be ripped away from it. The truth of God's word is woven into the very fabric of his being. That's God's standard. And it says, in accordance with the teaching, meaning this is not suggestions, and this is not personal advice. This is God's word. Why? Why should he be this way? It finishes up that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Meaning he's able to handle God's word. He knows why he believes what he believes and he can back it up. So the positive side of this, the exhort part, is a term that you might be familiar with when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going to send you a comforter, the Holy Spirit, meaning the paraclete. Paracleteo is the word that's used here for exhort. Look at the definition. To call near, to invite, invoke, by imploration, to beseech. Literally, it means to call someone alongside, gently. An elder will call someone alongside to speak to them about what? Look at the definition for the word healthy, for sound doctrine. Hygiano. You're very familiar with this from the word hygiene. To have sound health, to be well. In your body, figuratively, to be uncorrupt, true in doctrine. So we've got the picture here of an individual who's gentle enough in their spirit to call an individual alongside and say, here's the Hygiano of Scripture. Let me exhort you and call you alongside and show you the truth. Being able to defend why they believe what they believe. So the picture here is one who protects and preserves life. And it is an awesome responsibility, especially in a church that's growing so rapidly like this. It's a huge undertaking. That's why James wrote, be very careful that not many of you aspire to be teachers. Look with me on the screen, James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I believe the Bible is not a resource of truth. It is the source of truth. It's not something we go to for commentary. It is God's truth. It's the only text. And that's why we have to defend it. And I know that's why Paul made it the last of the qualifications. One who can defend the word. What we proclaim is dictated by God, not by men. And we have this huge responsibility. There are those living in sin who are intolerant of what God says here. That's to be expected because it causes people to recoil. Recoil but that doesn't make us stop. That's why Paul gave such a strong admonition to Timothy and to Titus. Let me show you what this admonition is for those who would aspire to this position. This is where we close it. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myth. Do you live in that period of time? Absolutely. Absolutely, you can turn around and see it all around you. Individuals who have turned away to myth and turned away from sound doctrine. So we're told that the elder is supposed to be antelago, to speak against it, to refute that. Not just to sit in silence, but to stand against it. Why? Here's how it ends, verse 10. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, and they're not to be tolerated. They're to be silenced. So I challenged the young men when we started this list to pay very close attention to this. Because guys, I frankly believe that in what I've seen in the last 20 years change in the church has been amazing departure from truth of God's word here in the United States. I can only imagine what it's going to be like when you are at the place when you're ready to become elders. To establish yourself now is the only standard that you can accept to establish yourself firmly rooted in God's Word and say, if it's God's standard, it's not too high, it's the standard I aspire to. And I'd rather see you aspire to that standard now, rather than being 40, 50, 60 years old and say, I'm ready to become an elder, and then look back and say, I made way too many mistakes. I don't measure up to that standard. I'm not going to do it. How much better that we raise the standard and say, this is what you strive for. This is what you achieve towards. Let's not lower the bar. So in keeping with everything that you've just heard, we have three men to install as elders this morning that we're going to pray over. Um, I wonder Randy Reamer and Peter Yu and Mike Brister, if you'd come up here and join me, and uh, Mike's wife Amy and Peter's wife Kristen and Randy's wife Sherry are going to join us as well. Let me tell you a little bit about these individuals as we pray over them. Um, Peter and Kristen, who's coming up here, moved here from San Francisco two years ago, Um, and Peter is a uh, medical practitioner, cardiac, cardiologist, and Kristen, a homemaker with their children, and Randy and Sherry Reamer, uh, both eye doctors. Randy has been part of the church since the very beginning. When this facility was offered to us um, uh, three and a half years ago, we spent time praying together. And uh, for several weeks, and um, so he knows well the history of the church. And Mike and Amy Brister, Mike is a design engineer with Consumers Power Company. Would that be a good title? Yeah. Okay, design engineer. And uh, Amy is part of Jackson National Life, correct? Okay. And Mike and Amy have been here for, uh, since the church is about three or four months old. So they understand well New Hope's direction what we're headed towards, and they understand the responsibility. And if I haven't scared you off of the teaching this morning, um, we're going to pray over you individuals. So Gary's going to pray first. I'm going to invite the guys to kneel here on the ground, and we'll put our hands on them and the wives to uh, put their hands on them with us. We're going to pray over them if you'd pray with us. So Gary's going to start, and then I'm going to close.